Have you ever been wronged by someone and then wanted to see that person suffer? Have you ever heard about something bad happening to someone and your brain knows the appropriate response, but your face doesn't quite get the memo? So as the words, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, are coming out of your mouth, a smile is creeping on to your face. Have you ever fought back against someone or something and you don't even remember why you're fighting, you just want someone to hurt? What is that? It's anger. It's unforgiveness. It's revenge. And it's ugly. And it's devastating. The writer Anne Lamott famously said that unforgiveness is like taking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. It's like taking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. And yet, how many of us, if we're honest, if we look at our lives, our lives are affected, if not ruled, by unforgiveness. Our lives are affected, if not ruled, by vengefulness. Our lives are affected, if not ruled, by a desire to get that person This morning in the scriptures, we're going to look at a story that is violent. It's a story that's barbaric. It's a story that in many ways is frankly repulsive. But it's a story that has unbelievable power in it. As we walk through this story, I want to talk about the weight of revenge. As we walk through this story, I want to talk about what happens in our minds when we seek to pay someone back. And as we talk about this story, I want to talk about the freedom that we can find in forgiveness. Because the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Seeking revenge helps no one. Seeking revenge helps no one. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Judges, chapter 13. It should be on page 213, and the Bible's underneath the seat In front of you. We have three chapters to cover, so we are just going to dive right in. Chapter 13, verse 1 says this And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. What has become a reoccurring theme in the book of Judges is the people of Israel are disobedient, so God allows a foreign power to take them over. In this case, it is the Philistines, and they've they've taken them over now for 40 years. Verse 2. There's a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. The two most important aspects of life in the ancient world were land and family. Nothing was more important than land and family. So to be ruled over by a foreign power, to not be free in your own land, and to be unable to have children was quite literally a fate worse than death. It was the height of shame for a woman in that culture. Verse 3. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born, born in children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. This is unbelievable. This is the best day of this woman's life right here. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband. She's very excited, as you can imagine. She says, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like that, was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child uh, shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Okay, so this, this angel keeps referencing this idea of this child being a Nazarite. What the heck does that mean? So, so, so the idea of being a Nazarite is described in Numbers chapter 6, where, the concept of, where we find the concept of a Nazarite vow. Here's how a Nazarite vow worked. Is that a Nazarite vow was, was, a, was something that was entered into for a specified period of time, voluntarily, for the purpose of just greater focus and attention on the Lord. So it's for a specified period of time, voluntarily, for, for, for increased focus on the Lord. It's, it's more or less similar to how we might fast from something today. We voluntarily give something up so that we can focus more in on the Lord. Now, the, 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 the different thing about this case versus what is described in Numbers chapter 6 is in this case, Samson, spoiler alert, that's the child's name, Samson is not entering into this voluntarily. He's being told that he's going to be a Nazarite from, from the womb. And it's not for a simply a set period of time. He's going to be a Nazarite for his entire life. That's unusual. And to be a Nazarite meant three things. You were making three commitments. And don't miss these because they're going to come up in our story later. Number one, if you're a Nazarite, that meant you abstained from wine or any sort of grape or vine-based beverage. Now, number two, it meant you didn't cut your hair. You spent a lot of money on shampoo during the period of your Nazarite vow. And both the abstaining from alcohol for a time and the abstaining from haircutting for a time was meant to sort of be a symbol of training or of pressing into something greater. And then the third commitment you made as a Nazarite was you didn't touch a dead body or carcass, either animal or human. You didn't touch a dead body. And the idea behind that was, was, there, was that cleanliness and ritual cleanliness was a big deal in that culture. And priests had to maintain ritual cleanliness in order to lead the people in worship. And part of how they did that was by not touching dead bodies. So the idea is, if you're a Nazarite, you are seeking to emulate the purity standards of the priests by not doing that. So... No wine, no hair cutting, no dead bodies. Don't forget that. So, verse 8. She goes and she's telling her husband this, and her husband is sort of like, well, okay, let's, uh, let's look into this. And I, I love his, his response. He says, Then Manoah, verse 8, prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And he's saying, uh, okay, so this seems pretty... Incredible. I'm not saying I don't believe it, but if you could maybe come back, confirm to me that this is in fact what we're doing here, and then give us a little bit more information, I would appreciate that. This is, says the angel does come back, and Manoah got to talk to him. If we skip down 
to verse 12, it says this, And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, he's speaking back to the angel now, what is this to be, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? T- tell me, what do you want us to do with him? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded, commanded her, let her observe. And I think it's interesting that Manoah is going to the angel basically saying, I need more information. Like, tell me exactly what you want me to do, and I'll do it. How many of us, like, let's just be honest, we go to God with that perspective all the time. Like, God, I'll do what you want me to do, as long as you make it really clear and give me detailed instructions. And the angel says back to him, I've told you what I'm going to tell you. Do that. And and, and sort of the subtext of that is, the idea is, listen, you don't need more specific instructions. You need to know God and trust him. Let's start there. Know God and trust him and make decisions from that place. And that's where you want to start. Helpful advice for us today as we often think, oh God, if you would just make it clear, I would do what you ask when, when God would say, no, I don't, I don't need, you don't need more instructions. You need to know me and you need to know my character and you need to make decisions from that place. So the story continues. They have this kind of dialogue back and forth for a little bit longer and then The chapter wraps up with this, verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadon between Zorah and Eshtael. From here, the text fast forwards immediately to Samson's adult life. And it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly just how far off the rails Samson's life is going to get. Verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all the people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. So what happens? Samson goes, sees a Philistine woman, likes what he sees, comes back and says to his parents, get her for me as a wife, which is sort of just an unbelievably callous and disrespectful statement on about a hundred different levels. But here's, here's, here's the one that maybe is not as obvious is that, is that you got to understand Samson's parents They knew the calling that he had on his life. They knew that he was the one who was supposed to begin to rescue the Israelites from the Philistines. And so imagine their shock as their son, who has this calling on his life, comes back to them and says, actually, instead of rescuing Israel from the Philistines, I'd like to marry a Philistine. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. So his parents try to talk some sense into him. But he shuts it down completely, just extraordinary disrespect, and what does he say? He says, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. We've seen that statement already, we're going to see it again, about things being right in Samson's eyes. The the author is indicating to us, what what does that mean? The author is indicating to us that Samson is his own highest authority. To say that something is right in my eyes is to say, I'm going to do this and I don't care what anybody else thinks. And let's just be honest, how often do you and I reject the counsel of wise people? Reject the counsel of 
the scriptures, reject the counsel of people who maybe have a little bit of emotional distance from our situation, so their judgment is not as clouded as ours is, we reject the counsel of those people saying essentially, no, no, I'm going to do what I want. This seems right in my eyes. And how does that work out for us? Not very well. But that's the road that Samson's walking. Verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So wait, what the, so wait God is involved in this somehow? What's, what's going on here? Here's what the verse is saying. And this is, a, this is a big deal for the entire story of Samson. Is that God is going to use Samson for good in spite of his sin. Which is an encouragement to me, by the way. Hopefully an encouragement to you. Right? That God can use broken people to do some good things. So God is not supporting, God is not sanctioning his sin, but he's saying, you know what? Samson is a broken guy doing broken things, but I'm going to take those things and I'm going to use them for some good. Here's what he's referring to specifically in this verse. So we've already learned that the Philistines had ruled over Israel for 40 years. In every other instance up to this point in the Old Testament, where Israel had been ruled over by a foreign power, They cry out to God for deliverance. Oh God, save us. Oh God, rescue us from the hands of our oppressors. The most famous example being in the book of Exodus, where they're enslaved in Egypt and they cry out to God and God goes to Moses and says, hey, I've heard the cry of my people Israel. And that leads to the Exodus and the Passover and all all of that stuff. But in this case, there's nothing. In this case, it's been 40 years and the Israelites are like, eh, it's not so bad. Philistines, they got good food. They could do this. Sure, yeah, let's just keep doing this. It's going fine. They're becoming enmeshed with this pagan society. They're becoming just like them. And, and God knows that, that, that it's only a couple of generations before they just become completely uh, a part of Philistine society and this culture, this, this Israel, this special prized possession of God could be no more if they continue to just sort of float down the river of becoming more like the Philistines. So God says, I need to stir something up. There needs to be some agitation here. So the story has been, you know, kind of had some odd elements so far. Now it's about to get really weird. Verse five. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, which, by the way, not the greatest spot to be hanging out if you're not supposed to be drinking wine. Just throwing that out there. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. You know. As one tears a young goat. We've all had that experience. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Question. What was the third element of a Nazarite vow? Don't touch a carcass. And what did he just do? He killed a lion. I personally have never killed a lion. Hard to believe, I know. But I'm guessing it involves touching a carcass. I'm guessing it involves touching a carcass. So he has now violated one of the terms of his Nazarite vow. But here's another question. 
It said the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him right before he did that. Why is the Spirit of the Lord empowering him to break his vow? I don't know. Let's just move on. (laughs) Very weird. Verse 8. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He did what any of us would do in that situation. He scraped it out with his hands and went on eating as he went. So he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. I told you it got weird. So Samson, walking along, sees the lion that he killed and sees, oh, hey, there's some bees and some honey in there. So he goes in and scoops some out. And by the way, that's touching a carcass. Not good. Just keeps just walking along, eating his weird lion carcass honey, and then gets back and gives it to his parents, thus rendering them unclean because they've eaten the weird lion carcass honey. And you thought your kids pulled weird stuff on you. But that's, so that's, that's what's gone on here. And then we saw, and then he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't tell them what's gone on. So then verse 10. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. By the way, the Hebrew word for feast is the word mishte, which literally means drinking bout. So there, almost certainly, goes part one of the Nazarite vow. Samson, not doing great on the Nazarite vow thing up to this point. Verse 11. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. These are essentially uh, rental groomsmen for Samson. He's a lone ranger. He doesn't answer to anybody. He doesn't have any friends. So some friends are provided for him. Verse 12. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. And if you can tell it to me uh, within, tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. So he meets his 30 groomsmen, and he says, you know what would be really fun, guys? This will really help us get to know one another. It won't create any controversy or ill will in any way. Let's just get into some high-stakes gambling. Let's just do it. Come on. Great idea. What could possibly go wrong? So he says, I've got a riddle for you. If you can tell me, if you can answer the riddle, I'll give you 30 sets of clothing. If you, uh, if you can't get it, you have to get me 30 sets of clothing. So either way, a significant amount of capital is going to change hands. Chapter 14. Verse 14, and he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, three days, they couldn't solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Whoa. That escalated quickly. We're going from, hey, we're getting together for a wedding, to, hey, let me tell you a riddle. We'll have a little wager associated with it to tell us the answer. We're going to burn you alive. What is going on here? This is crazy. They say, have you invited us here to impoverish us? Verse 16. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. Come on, Samson. Tell me the answer. 
And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Now, If you're reading that and thinking, I'm not sure what exactly that means, but it sounds really vulgar. It is. So here's what's going on. So Samson's wife has cried and cried and cried to Samson. Oh, Samson, just tell me the answer. Tell me the answer. Tell me the answer. He finally relents and he tells her the answer to the riddle. She goes and tells her, the, you know, the groomsmen friends what the, what the answer to the riddle is. They go to Samson and tell Samson the answer and he just flies off the handle in a fit of blind rage. It's a beautiful love story if I've ever seen one. Verse 19, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle in hot anger. He went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Okay. A couple things here. Number one, that's called overreacting. Just a little upset. I think he maybe took things too far. Number two, what's bizarre to me is that, and I know we all have our ancient Middle Eastern geography memorized, but just a refresher, that's a joke. Ashkelon is 25 miles from Timnah. He had to pass through, he had to pass through one town and then bypass two other closer towns to get there. So for whatever reason, Samson decides to go fully 25 miles to do his deed, which to me indicates this was not just a crime, so to speak, of passion. He had a lot of time to think about what he was going to do. So third thing we notice is that the way that Samson decides to repay his debt is to travel these 25 miles, kill 30 Philistines take their clothes, bring those clothes back up and give them to his groomsmen and sort of hope they didn't notice the blood stains. It's like, what? I told you, the story is barbaric. Fourth, uh, sort of lost in all of this, is Samson's father-in-law decides, well, things clearly aren't going well here, so I'm just going to give Samson's wife, my daughter, to somebody else. And then finally, finally, last thing, once again, we see Samson break his Nazarite vow, this time in a much more serious way. He goes down, he kills 30 people. What's going on here? It says right beforehand, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Then he goes and does this horrible thing. Why is the spirit of the Lord empowering him to break his Nazarite vow? I don't know. It's very confusing. Let's just keep going. Verse 1, chapter 15. I do know. I'm just not going to tell you yet. Uh, verse, verse 1 of chapter 15. After some days... At the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Gentlemen, in case you're still holiday shopping for the missus, just thought. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. In other words, I am delusional about how my marriage is going. I think things are going much better than they actually are. 
But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please, take her instead. So the father-in-law says, hey, listen, simple misunderstanding here. I know you married this daughter, but I thought, you know, things had kind of gone south with the two of you. So I gave her to somebody else. But here, I've got this other daughter. Why don't you go ahead and take her instead? Some real dad of the year stuff going on here. Just, just terrific. I'm telling you, the romantic comedy script just writes itself. Verse 3. And Samson said to them, this time... I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. This time, in my anger, in my rage, because they have wronged me, my vengeance is justified. They have pushed me over the edge, and now I am free to act how I wish with impunity. Why? Because I have been wronged. And see, we see this perspective in others, and it absolutely horrifies us. But it begins to bubble up in ourselves when we're wronged, and we want revenge, and we've got a thousand reasons why it's okay. We say, well, well, no, 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 I am not responsible for what I'm about to do because I'm just getting them back. See, when you and I, when we decide to seek revenge, our moral compass goes out the window. Our moral compass goes out the window. Things that we would have said are absolutely wrong to say or absolutely wrong to do, all of a sudden are in play if someone does those things to us. We need to say, no, 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 they've done this to me, so I have the right to get them back. We allow the actions of another to completely crush our moral compass. Why? Because we think I've been wronged. I have a score to settle. And it's just sickening. But... We'll cut Samson some slack here. He's had a tough day. And really, I think he reacts to this how any of us would have. Chapter 15, verse 4. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. By the way, there's a book on Amazon that will teach you how to do this. It's really fascinating stuff. And verse 5. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. What, what did he just do here? So he got these foxes. He tied them together tail to tail, shoved a torch between their rear end, and set them free in the grain fields of the Philistines. And we don't have time to get into all the details of it, but here's essentially what has happened. He has destroyed their winter crops. He has destroyed their summer crops. The Philistines' ability to have an economy, their ability to work, their ability to have a livelihood, their ability to feed their families has quite literally gone up in smoke. This is an act of economic terrorism. It is an act of war in no uncertain terms. Verse 6. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. What? Like, okay, we had a domestic dispute. 
Samson overreacts and burns the field. Now all of a sudden we've got people getting burned alive. What is going on here? And Samson, verse 7, Samson said to them, if this is what you do, other translations translate it, because you have acted in this way. This is what you do. Because you have acted in this way, I swear I will be avenged on you and after that I will quit. Because this is what you have done, I am seeking my vengeance. See, when you and I get into revenge mindset, here's what happens. We start to believe this false narrative where we are the 100% innocent victim and the other person is 100% the perpetrator. We forget, we are blinded to how our own actions might have contributed to the situation. Here is a guy with the blood of 30 Philistines on his hand who has just destroyed an entire culture's uh, means of providing a, a livelihood for themselves. And he's saying, what? Well, because you did this, because you've acted in this way towards me, I have the right to get back at you. And then the other sickening aspect of revenge is Samson says, well, since you have acted like this, I'm going to get my revenge and then I will quit. I'm going to get my revenge and then I will quit. And that's so ridiculous. It'd be funny if it weren't so sad. But we say that sort of thing when we get into revenge mindset. We say, you know, no, no, I'm just going to get them back for what they did to me and then that'll be it. But that's not how revenge works. That's not how revenge works too often. They get us, so we want to hit them harder. So they hit us harder, and we hit hit them harder. And this destructive cycle of revenge just keeps going and going and going. Or we say things like this. We say, well, they have wronged me in some way, and I need to teach them a lesson. Come on, I'm just trying to teach them a lesson here. When has that ever worked, even once in the history of the world? When have you ever, come on, when have you ever wronged someone, done something you're not proud of, you've wronged someone, and they wronged you in return to get revenge on you, and your response to that was, oh my gosh, I see it so clearly now. What I did was so wrong, I am so sorry. Your act of cruelty in response to my cruelty has inspired me to be a better, more forgiving, kinder, more loving person. Do I owe you anything? Can I pay you for this? I, I've learned my lesson. No, that's ridiculous. That never happens. That never happens. What actually happens is both parties are trying to teach the other a lesson. And again, it just escalates and escalates and escalates and gets uglier and uglier and uglier. In Exodus chapter 21... God gives one of the most famous laws in all of scripture, whether you're a church person or not, you've at least heard of it. The gist of the law is an eye for an eye. The idea of it is this, is that if somebody wrongs you in some way, you are allowed to seek restitution up to but not exceeding what was taken from you. And, and that law gets a lot of bad press. I mean, we see quotes like an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind and all of that. And I think there's some wisdom to that. But the, but the wisdom comes from misunderstanding the point of the law. See, eye for an eye is not sanctioning revenge. It's not saying revenge is okay or revenge is right. It is limiting revenge. The point is, it is limiting revenge. Because again, we never want to get back. We're going to talk about getting even in just a second. When we're wrong, we want to hit back harder. And God is saying, no, you can take what was taken from you 
If you must seek revenge, you can take what is taken from you, and that's it. We're not having any of this, you broke my arm, I'm going to kill your daughter, nonsense. And we're not having any sort of like Hatfields and McCoys or, you know, Montagues and Capulets kind of situation where someone says something wrong to someone and 30 years later we're still killing each other's brothers. We're not doing that. You can get what was taken from you and no more. The matter is decided. But we don't do that. When we seek revenge, we need laws like an eye for an eye again, not to sanction revenge, but to limit it. Because when we get into the revenge mindset again, it just escalates and escalates and escalates. And that sort of mentality, by the way, of escalation, it destroys families. It wrecks relationships. Heck, it has started wars and altered the course of human history. This idea of you've attacked me, I must attack you and hit back harder. It is unbelievably destructive. So back to our story. Verse 8. Things are only getting worse. And he struck them. Here's how he gets his revenge. He struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. In other words, he beat them up really bad. And he went down and stayed in the cleft at the rock of Edom. Verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah, those are Samson's people, say to the Philistines, why have you come up against us? And they said, we have come up to bind Samson, look at this, don't miss it, to do to him as he did to us. Come on, hey, 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 come on. We're just, we're not the bad guys here. We're just coming to him to do what he did to us. That's all we're trying to do, and that is entirely justified. Never mind the fact that we're causing the revenge death spiral to keep spinning. See, here's one of the great lies we believe when we become fixated on revenge. We start to believe that we're going to feel better if we can only get even. Oh, I just want to do to them what they did to me, and then everything's going to be okay. Here's, here, here's, here's the reality. We have no idea what even is. In almost all cases, we have no, we don't even know what it would mean to look, or what it would mean to get even. Let me ask you a couple questions. How will you know? Think about somebody who's harmed you, who you just have some sense of desire to get back at them. How will you know when they've suffered enough? How will you know when they've suffered enough? What will that feel like to you? My guess is you probably don't have an answer to those questions. Because there is no answer to those questions. Or, or here's another thing that we say when we get into revenge mindset. We should, if we're just in a really dark place, I mean, we'll say something like, listen, I know I can't get even. I know I can't take back what they've taken from me. But I just want to see them suffer because they've made me suffer so much. I want to submit to you this morning that whoever, I don't know what you've been through. We got a lot of stories in a room like this of just hurt and wounds we're carrying with us. I don't know who hurt you, what they did, but here's what I do know. Whoever it is that hurts you, they are already suffering. They are already hurting. And here's how I know that. Because hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. I mean, come on, think about it this way. Think about a time in your life where you did something mean or cruel to somebody else. Again, something that you're not proud of, but sometime where you just acted selfishly, acted uh, just in a mean way to somebody else, acted out of anger, whatever the case may be. And we've all got them. What was your mindset when you acted in that way? I'm not asking how did you feel afterwards. I'm asking how did you feel before? You were a mess. There was something broken in you 
So you lashed out. You were angry. You were insecure. You were miserable. There was something in you that was messed up, so you lashed out. Listen, nobody, and I mean nobody, says, you know what? My life is going awesome right now. I am just killing it in every regard, and I am incredibly happy. So I'm going to go ruin someone else's life. (laughs) Nobody says that. Nobody says that. Hurt people hurt people. So so here's what what, what you know. People that hurt you, the people that hurt me. They're already suffering. They're already miserable. You piling on is not going to make a difference. You piling on is not going to be helpful to them. And it's not going to be helpful to you. Because seeking revenge helps nobody. So back to our story. The men of Judah, they're now a little bit frustrated with Samson. Because the Philistines are at their front door saying, Hey, we're here to get our revenge on Samson. And they don't really want to pick a fight with the Philistines because they're the Philistines and they're powerful. So verse 11, then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? Hey, Samson, don't you realize the Philistines could really like whoop us if they wanted to? Let's not provoke them, okay? And he said to them, as they did to me, so have I done to them. Come on, man. I'm just doing to them what they've done to me. Once again, we see in the revenge mindset, we, we allow what someone else has done to completely crush our moral compass. Yeah, 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 I know what I did was wrong, but it's okay because of what they have done to me. And that's just not true. But what happens is the dialogue continues and eventually an agreement is reached where the people of Judah are going to tie up Samson and return him to the Philistines. Here you go. He's your problem now, not ours. But here's what happens. Uh, Verse 14, which by the way, lest you think the barbaric part of the story is over, it's not. Verse 14, chapter 15. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arm became as flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, with a jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. The Hebrew literally, with a jawbone of a donkey, I've made donkeys of them. With a jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand Men. Nice. And what goes on, we're going to come back to this in a second, but just to finish out what happens in the story, what goes on is this is finished. Samson gets thirsty. He cries out to God asking him for some water, and then God provides him some water, and then the scriptures tell us that Samson proceeded to rule Israel for 20 years. And again, we're going to go back to the whole donkey jawbone thing in just a second, but here's the really crazy part. That only concludes Act 1 of Samson's story. you got to come back next week. Lance will tell you Act 2 of the Samson story, and there's all sorts of crazy still left. So we're definitely... Uh, not done with this guy, but here's what's happened in this instance is he's, he's, he's Samson goes and he, he very important when you're getting ready to go slaughter hundreds of your enemies. The last thing you want is a dry, brittle jawbone. It's not going to work. It'll break. So he goes and he gets the fresh jawbone of a donkey, almost certainly violating his Nazarite vow. And then he goes and he uses it to hack up a thousand people, which is definitely a violation of his Nazarite vow. And here we see 
Again, the revenge cycle getting worse and worse and worse. What started as a domestic dispute, now there are armies involved and there's a thousand dead people. And you might say, well, this is a primitive and barbaric story from a primitive and barbaric time. And I would say there's some truth to that. But here's what's also true, is revenge is always primitive and barbaric. Revenge is always primitive and barbaric. You can dress up revenge in the wealthiest, most prosperous culture the world has ever seen, and revenge is always barbaric. It is always devastating. It is always the worst of us. And this story raises a number of questions. So many issues surrounding what do we make, what do we make of, what do we make of this story? And I want to talk through three of them as we begin to wrap up. First, the spirit of the Lord at the end of, the, at the end of this comes upon Samson and this time he's committed his most grisly act yet. He took this jawbone of a donkey and kills a thousand people. Again, obviously a violation of his Nazarite vow. Why does the Spirit of the Lord keep empowering him to break his vow? Why is the Spirit of the Lord empowering Samson to commit these horrific acts of violence? I've, I've read this story a thousand times, and that's always bothered me. On the surface, it doesn't seem to make any sense. But perhaps, and this is new to me this week as I was doing my research, perhaps that's not what's happening at all. Is it possible that's not what's happening at all? If we look back briefly at the very first instance where it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. In Judges chapter 14, what's Samson doing? He's walking in the vineyards where he should not be. Going to try to marry a Philistine woman who he definitely should not marry. And what happens? It says a lion jumps out in front of him. Lions are referenced other places in the Old Testament. They are always a symbol of God's judgment. And this is the only place in all of scripture where the author who's talking about lions makes reference to the, how the lion was young. The Hebrew literally means the youngest of young lions. So this is like, this is, this is not Simba at the end of the Lion King. This is Simba at the beginning of the Lion King, all right? And it says the lion was roaring at him, not attacking him, roaring at him. So scholars believe that this was a cub and that Samson's life was not in danger at all. So when the spirit of the Lord was rushing upon him, it was the spirit of the Lord saying, Samson, what are you doing? Why are you going down that road? The lion was there by the spirit of God saying, Samson, this is the judgment of God on you right now. What are you doing? Come on, wake up. What are you doing walking down this path? And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him saying, come on, Samson, this is not who you are. And Samson ignored the spirit, shoved the spirit off to the side, kills the lion, continues on his way. Let's look at the second issue as he's getting ready to go to Ashkelon. What happened there? The spirit, he he gets enraged. We've seen multiple times in this story, Samson's got a bit of an anger problem. And he gets enraged and he says, I'm going to go take out my vengeance. I'm going to go kill all these people. And it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And yet he still went his 25 miles to Ashkelon. I imagine that was a very awkward journey of him constantly turning around saying, no, Holy Spirit, don't care, don't care, don't care, Holy Spirit, we're doing this. No, be quiet. I'm not going to, I don't care what you say. I'm going to keep doing it. See, the Spirit rushed upon him to say, Samson, what are you doing? Samson, this is not, you're a Nazarite. This is not who you're called to be. 
that this cycle of anger and vengeance and violence has to stop. And then the third instance, it's just like the second. He gets angry. He's enraged. He can't believe he's about to be handed over to the Philistines. So, so, he, so he, he gets enraged. He breaks, his, breaks the bonds that were holding him in place. And he goes, and it says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And the spirit of the Lord saying, Samson, what are you doing? This is not you. See, so often we get told, we get taught that, that, that what happened when the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson, that gave him incredible strength for these feats of strength that he did. Well, that's actually not true at all. We, we know, we'll see next week in the story, Samson already had his strength. His strength was connected to his, to his hair, which we'll say more about that next time. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him saying, Samson, what are you doing? This is not who you are. And Samson ignored him with devastating consequences. And I want to suggest to you that you and I so often can do the same thing. See, what happens is there's not jawbones involved and there's not a big pile of bodies. So it's maybe not as obvious as it is in the book of Judges. But, but may I submit to you that maybe sometimes what happens in our lives is this, that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he sent the angry email. That the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon her as she typed the hateful Facebook comment, but she pressed post anyway. After all, she is only doing to them what they did to her. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, but he passed along the office gossip. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon her, but she had to get the last word. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, but he refused to apologize. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, but he gave the one-way sign to the driver that cut him off. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, but he refused to make the call that would bring peace. I want to suggest to you that you and I can be just like Samson, because there is not a person sitting in this room, myself included, who does not know the feeling of getting ready to do something, having just this catch in your spirit saying, you know what, this just isn't right, and then continuing to do it anyway. May I suggest to you that that is the spirit of the Lord rushing upon us. And how desperately do we need to be sensitive to his movement? Because again, we see it in Samson's life, the devastating consequences of ignoring the Holy Spirit. But, but come on, we don't have jawbones and we don't have piles of bodies, but it's just as barbaric. And in many ways, the consequences can be as devastating. Number two, there's a passage in the New Testament book of Romans where Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God says, don't take vengeance into your hand. Leave it to me. Don't take vengeance into your hand. Leave it to me. I had a, had a friend and mentor in a past season of my life who, who taught on this passage, and the way he described it was he described what God is saying about vengeance here is it's sort of like taking a child into your workshop, and you show them some of, your, some of the tools that you use, but then you, you direct his or her attention to the wall and show them the power tools, and you say, those tools are mine. If I give them to you, you will not use them properly and you will hurt yourself and you will hurt others. Children don't get chainsaws. That that's what God's saying with vengeance. God's saying, see that tool up there, that's mine. And when I use it, I use it perfectly. 
And I use it justly. See, when you use it, you use it emotionally. You use it in a way that escalates. You use it in a way that paints you as the the pure victim and the other person as a perpetrator. And that does nothing good. Vengeance is mine. And see, when you and I, when we're wronged and we feel like we need to take revenge into our own hands, here's what we're saying. We're saying, God, I'm actually a better judge than you are. We're saying, God, I can be the one who is in charge of ensuring justice in the universe. Let me just hit you with two little nuggets of truth related to that. You are lousy at that job, and so am I. And if you try to take it, it's exhausting. If you try to take it, it's exhausting. You are not the judge of the universe. Vengeance is not your responsibility. That is not a club for you to wield. You can't wield it properly, and neither can I. Finally, the story of Samson is unquestionably a story of vengeance. It's a story of an escalating pattern of hate and violence. And when we choose, when you and I choose vengeance, we are choosing to live with an unbearable weight upon our shoulders. And the only way, the only way to stop the cycle of vengeance is with forgiveness. The only way to stop the cycle of vengeance is forgiveness. I've heard it described this way, that anytime, anytime you or I, something, we are wronged in some way, it creates a wound. It creates, we'll just name it. There's, there's something wrong that has happened. A wound has been created. And when you and I seek revenge or vengeance, what we're doing is we're taking the wound, we're making it worse, and then we're passing it back to somebody else. And then they take that wound, they make it worse, and then they pass it back to you. And they, and you take the wound and make it worse and pass it back to them. And on and on and on it goes. And at the center of our faith, is someone who said the wound is not getting passed back. At the center of our faith is someone who said the cycle of hate and anger and violence and revenge stops here. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was putting an end to this cycle of revenge. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said it stops here. I'm not passing the wound back. I mean, even consider, what did he say when he was on the cross? He didn't say, all right, Father, they've got me, but get them. Let's get revenge on them right now. He said, no. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. See, we talk a lot in the Christian world about how Jesus died for our sins. As well we should. That is the cornerstone of our faith, is that we can be be clean before the eyes of God. We can have a restored relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But do you realize that Jesus didn't just die for the sins you've committed, he died for the sins committed against you? That means you do not have to seek vengeance. That means you do not have to carry the weight of unforgiveness because for every sin that is committed against you, either the perpetrator will confess their sin and have their sin covered by the blood of Jesus, or they will face the just and right vengeance of God. Either way, 
you don't have to carry the weight of unforgiveness and vengeance any longer. Vengeance is not yours to give. There's a man by the name of Lewis Smeads who taught ethics at my alma mater, Fuller Seminary, for many years. And he said this. He said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner was you. To forgive is to set the prisoner free and discover the prisoner was you. Listen, forgiveness is not saying what happened was okay. It's not calling what God calls evil good. It's not saying, hey, we don't need some boundaries here to keep this from happening again. It's not saying, well, we don't need to get the legal process involved and let that run its course. It's not saying, man, this wound didn't hurt. It's not saying, heck, you can forgive and maybe reconciliation's not even possible. But what forgiveness is, is it's saying, I'm not allowing the cycle of vengeance to continue. I am going to keep the wound because I'm tired of passing it back and forth. I'm tired of taking the rat poison and waiting for someone else to die. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is saying, I'm setting the prisoner free and I'm realizing the prisoner was me. I'm not going to live with the weight of unforgiveness any longer. And there is incredible freedom in that. I want to invite the prayer team to come on up. And I live in the real world just like you do. I have hurt and pain just like you do. And I recognize at this time of year, oftentimes the pain of what has been done to us, the pain of desiring revenge, the pain of feeling the hurt that has been inflicted upon us by others, that we feel that much more acutely this time of year. And and we need God's help. If we are going to step out of the prison of desiring revenge, we are going to step out of the prison of unforgiveness, and we are going to accept the gift of God, which says, God, I don't need to live with this any longer. I can forgive because you've forgiven me, and because you have paid for their sin just as you've paid for mine. So these men and women are up here, and I want to encourage you, have the courage as we finish here to come up here and ask these men and women to pray for you. They would love to see you do it, and I want to pray that that prisoners would walk out of prisons today, and it would be us. So let me pray for us, and we'll close. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that even as we study a story just as broken and brutal as this one, where vengeance is all over the place, that it can point us to a better way. It can point us to the way of forgiveness. It can help us recognize the futility of seeking revenge and the beauty of saying, I'm not passing the wound back. It ends here. Thank you that we can look to the cross and see the place where our sins were forgiven. Thank you that we can look to the cross And see where the sins committed against us were paid for. Thank you that you do not desire for us to live in the prison of unforgiveness, but that you desire for us to be set free. I pray for the men and women to my right and to my left who will be praying in a few moments. Would you allow them to pray bold prayers that freedom might be experienced in this place today? May we be a people who walk into this Advent season free because we're not carrying the desire for revenge anymore. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend. Be sure to stop by and see the Global Empowerment Market on their way out.